welcome to the Hello Harvest Economic Institute webinar on the debt ceiling, reigning in the Leviathan or mutually assured destruction. My name is Hjeta Storsletten. Uh, I'm uh, uh, happy to meet you. Glad to see so many people here today. We are gathered here today because the federal government of the United States of America is about to hit the debt ceiling. We will discuss whether it's a good idea or a bad idea for the US to have a debt ceiling and what are the consequences of hitting that ceiling and possibly default. We have three panelists with us that are uh, uh, among the world's leading experts on fiscal policy and default. Let's start out with Professor Chris Fein, um, a professor of economics at the uh, University of Minnesota. Hello, everybody. Uh, so I'm going to just start by giving some history to this uh, to this situation. So right now, uh, and, I, and, and give actually a couple of hokey stories. Uh, Right now, our federal government deficit is around 5% of GDP in a time of peace and no recession. Uh, we're currently spending about 128% of our revenues. So I want to argue that our current situation, even if you get rid of the whole idea of hitting the debt limit, we're doing an unsustainable path right now. Uh, the debt to GDP ratio is actually not growing right now because of inflation. Because when you have inflation, you're actually devaluing all the debt that you have. Uh, but it's not going down either. So eventually, if we want to stop having so much inflation, we're going to be back to having a debt-to-GDP ratio of about, it's currently about 120%. Uh, the markets seem okay with 120%. They seem to be okay with Japan at about 200%. But there is some limit. You can't have 100 times your GDP in debt. Uh, and nobody knows where exactly the limit is, but there's some limit that the world imposes on you as opposed to Congress. Uh, and then there's really nothing you can do. The next thing I wanted to say is that debt ceiling negotiations and brinksmanship is not a new thing. The big crisis, there was a big crisis like this one in 1985. The Treasury had to do the kind of things that they're doing now because they said they actually hit the debt ceiling in January and are doing technical things to keep from going over the statutory debt limit. This has happened not infrequently. The one that's closest, I think, to what's happening now is 1985. And in some sense, this is to be expected to given given divided government. Uh, I just want to give some history. It used to be that Congress authorized every single debt auction. They would say, because it says right in the Constitution, Article 1, Congress is the one that has the right to borrow. And they used to take that very seriously and say, we authorize the Treasury on this date to auction this many government bonds with these terms. They said the coupon payment, everything about them. Then they decided that that was too cumbersome on Congress to just pass every detail of every debt issuance. So they said, okay, Treasury, you can do whatever you want, just as long as you don't borrow more than this. So that's where the debt ceiling came from. It came from delegating the specifics of debt issuances to the Treasury, but not the total amount. The only idea I want people to get from this is, I don't know, I'm involved in the condo association. Where we are is like having a condo association that is spending, including loans that on, you know, on payments for the loans that it's already taken out. 28% more every month than what's coming in in the assessments from the owners. The board, up to now, the board president has been taking out loans to shortfall, you know, cover this shortfall each month. But the condo association has said you're allowed to take out loans, but not more than $100,000 or some limit. Uh, and you can't get new loans unless the entire board authorizes it, not just the president of the board. And they're up against that limit. So you're up against three things that can't coexist. The board is not authorized taking out any new loans. The board is not 
done the equivalent of taxes and said that you can increase taxes. Can't, they haven't done anything to allow more money to come in to pay the bills. And they've also told the board president to do these certain payments. And they just don't add up. So right now, the 14th Amendment says you got to pay the payments on the debt. There's plenty of money coming in every month to pay the payments on the debt. Uh, but there's not enough to make the payments on the debt and do all the Social Security spending, military spending, parks spending, everything. We just add up what we're spending every month as a government and what's coming in taxes. Again, we spend 28% more every month than what's coming in roughly. Uh, so then the problem is the condo board in my little example or Congress and the president in real life, everybody knows that you can't continue to do what you're doing. You literally don't have enough money to do everything that you're supposed to do. They can't agree on what to do with it. Uh, I just want to then bring a few more facts. We really do have a lot of debt. It's about $75,000 per person. Uh, and it's about twice that per worker. All right, so having $150,000 of debt owed to the, you know, the federal government owes about $150,000 per person, that's a big amount. Uh, but more to the point, most of the reasons that we economists say that it makes sense for a government to run deficits some year, surpluses other years, is almost like rainy day type analogies in families. You run up the debt during sunny, sorry, you, you pay down your debt during sunny days or even save during sunny days so that you can borrow uh, or run down your savings during rainy days. The problem is right now we're doing this spending $128,000 for every 100,000 that comes in, in sunny days. We're not in a recession. We're not in a war. We don't have the COVID crisis right now. Uh, this is the time we should be saving, not massively borrowing. And the future in terms of revenues doesn't look good. There's what's known as the dependency ratio, which is just the fraction of people who are working or the age to work versus the fraction of people who are not. And we're getting older and we're not having as many kids, but in balance, when you look at that, the, the number of workers per retired person keeps going down. This is the time we should be paying down the debt, not increasing the debt, because taxes in the future are going to go up in almost any scenario. They're gonna to have to go up even more because we're gonna to have to pay off this debt. Just for me to wrap up, I didn't want, I didn't come up with a title, Reigning in the Leviathan or Mutually Assured Destruction. The next speaker, Marco, did. Uh, but I really like the title. I think the answer is that we're possibly doing both. The one reason to have a debt limit is it helps in the kind of negotiations with the condo board or the taxpayers versus the executive or everything to have some limit. You actually have to come into agreement every now and then about what we're gonna do because it's just like it's easy for a family to say, okay, we're not gonna have this fight tonight. We're just gonna put it on the credit card. Congress can avoid fights like that just by putting it on the credit card. It's not good. This is a time we should pay down our debts, not adding to the credit card, but sometimes it's just natural in the political system to add it to the credit card in order to push the fight down the road a little. But yes, we are risking mutually assured destruction uh, if we stupidly don't pay the debt or don't make the payments on the debt when the tricks, when the Treasury runs out of tricks to keep them from violating the statutory debt limit. So I'm going to just finish up in my last minute by saying, well, who do I blame on all this? Do I blame the Republicans or do I blame the Democrats? I blame the American people. There's no constituency in this country for fiscal sanity. You have one party saying you can have high government and low taxes. And another one, you know, there's one party saying we can cut your taxes and it's not a problem. And the other one says we can raise your benefits and it's no problem. The American voter is convinced 
that it can have a European-sized government with relatively low taxes on the middle class compared to Europe. Anyone who proposes European-type taxes on the American people loses, and anyone who proposes having benefits that correspond to our taxes, having benefits for the middle class that correspond to our taxes on the middle class also loses. So at some point, the American people are going to have to decide that you just can't do everything by cutting foreign aid. You can't do everything they want to do by only taxing billionaires. There just isn't enough money there. If you want to have European-style benefits, you're going to have to have European-style taxes. Uh, or you can have American-style taxes and not have European benefits. But you can't do European benefits and American, historically American taxes. So I'm kind of done. I believe up next is thank you. Shuttle, go ahead. Uh, uh, thank you very much for uh, for, for that. Um, I must say uh, I am a bit more optimistic on behalf of the American people, but um, there was uh, um, you alluded to an important and a bit scary issue: the mutually assured destruction, hinting to the. Uh, uh, hinting back to the uh, terror balance of nuclear war. The next speaker, Dr. Marco Bassetto, monetary advisor at the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, is going to tell us something about that. Hello, everybody. Uh, good afternoon. Um, thank you for uh, uh, joining us. Um, I should uh, uh, start by mentioning that everything that I say is strictly my own uh, opinion and uh, does not reflect uh, necessarily the views uh, of uh, the Minneapolis Fed. Um, so I want to start reiterating something that um, um, Chris already touched upon. So this is uh, uh, in pictures uh, what uh, the um, surplus or the deficit, so surplus when it's above zero, it's a deficit everywhere else. Um, that the federal government has been running as a percent of uh, GDP. Um, so you can see a very large drop during World War II, not surprisingly. Um, it was a tragic period. Um, lots of resources were spent uh, in uh, fighting uh, uh, the Axis, um, and, and the government uh, uh, relied a lot on borrowing uh, for them, um, sharing the great sacrifice that that generation did with the future generations. Um, uh, since then, you can see that um, the what uh, the United States has been doing since uh, the uh, financial uh, recession is unprecedented. Um, and uh, um, and uh, one of the things so that uh, you want to keep in mind is um, the financial the what we call the Great Recession of two thousand eight was great, but it wasn't greater than what happened in the early 80s. Um, and you can see that the deficit was much smaller back then and wasn't greater than some of the recessions uh, uh, that the United States had uh, in, in the 70s. What happened with COVID was uh, definitely the biggest shock that the US economy had since World War II, but it was very short-lived. Um, as uh, as Chris mentioned, you know, the unemployment is back to um, uh, levels that are historically low. Um, certainly, some sectors were uh, hit in a persistent way. Think about leisure and hospitality; they're recovering uh, right now. Um, but overall, for the economy, it was a sharp but short-lived uh, uh, phenomenon. The deficit was not. Uh, short-lived um, and we're still at levels that essentially we had never seen except maybe uh, for a year or so of uh, uh, of the Reagan administration back when people were worried a lot in fact about deficits um, other than that they're unseen since uh, World War II. Now um, part of uh, um, uh, what economic theory uh, tells us about uh, this, so we have a, a significant uh, number of uh, political economy uh, papers that um, suggest that um, an environment of uh, political polarization will deliver this. And uh, intuitively, the reason is if you have two parties alternating in power that strongly disagree on uh, priorities, 
each one of them is going to try to uh, promote as much as possible while they empower their priorities and uh, leave the next party broke so that they cannot implement their priorities. So that's one possible explanation why uh, we are seeing bigger problems than than we have in the past. I want to briefly talk about uh, ways in which uh, uh, economies have uh, uh, been dealing with uh, uh, with this problem, because of course uh, overborrowing is certainly not something that is unique to the United States. In fact, many developing economies have uh, had uh, big default problems uh, um, that uh, you know the United States so far has uh, uh, not uh, faced, at least since uh, the 19th century. Um, and uh, so, one option uh, is uh, outside pressure. Um, so. Uh, sometimes uh, uh, in periods of debt crisis, uh, countries have called upon the IMF to provide them with help. Uh, in Europe, the Maastricht Treaty imposed us on limits, not terribly enforced, I must say. Um, but that's sort of a, a way of uh, getting uh, uh, the commitment to fiscal responsibility through an outside party. I don't think that's a viable uh, solution for the United States. So we'll, this is probably not the way... Um, look for. The, at the state level in the United States, um, almost all states have a rule that is uh, typically in their uh, constitution that um, we call uh, the golden rule in economics that says that you're only allowed to borrow for capital projects. That's a tough rule. Now, there's, as you can imagine, creative accounting around it, and uh, states differ in the amount of uh, creating, uh, creative accounting that can happen, but that's one way of uh, enforcing fiscal discipline. Um, the federal government has none of that. Um, it has tried in various ways of uh, dealing with this. So uh, in the 80s, uh, uh, there were a couple of acts called the Graham-Rudman-Hollings Acts um, that were uh, designed uh, to trigger automatic uh, sequestration, so reduction in, uh, in spending if uh, Congress did not agree on uh, respecting uh, some pre-specified uh, um, spending and deficits parameters. These were modified. There were a couple of uh, uh, acts in the 90s, the budget and for, uh, enforcement acts that worked in, uh, in similar ways. But since the early 2000s, those are gone. Um, and essentially, there are uh, right now there are two ways in which uh, uh, fiscal responsibility uh, partly shows up. One is uh, uh, through the annual budgeting process. Um, and as uh, uh, you probably know, if, uh, if there's no agreement uh, between Congress and, and the president, uh, we end up uh, with a, a temporary government shutdown until they do agree on, on spending. And the other is uh, uh, the debt ceiling that we're talking about today. Now, the difference, there's an important difference. Uh, well, um, let me first mention one thing. So these are... Uh, they're not constitution and they're not part of our constitution. So they're relatively easy to change. So these uh, uh, methods of uh, imposing some discipline are not that effective. In particular, they're only effective uh, when you have divided government, uh, because that's where you know there are really two factions that have to agree. Um, when uh, um, you have one party in power, um, there's nothing that prevents that party from just ignoring um, or you know, routinely uh, increasing the debt ceiling um, or passing whatever budget according to their priorities. Um, so that's important to notice. Um, if you go back to the picture that I've now taken out, the big period of surpluses uh, happened uh, in, uh, uh, in the 90s when uh, Clinton was president and the Republicans controlled the House. Um, and uh, in that period, we had a, a somewhat one of the longer uh, government shutdowns too. Um, and part of uh, that just shows you the divided government along with these institutions uh, is a way uh, in which fiscal discipline has uh, happened in the past. You can sort of see it also at the level of the state in the state of Minnesota. So last year we had divided government, we had a record surplus and it was not spent. Uh, this year, we don't have divided government and the record surplus was spent. Um, and I'm not saying whether that's good or bad. Um, you know, the, as I mentioned, the, the, the state situation is very different because they do have tight constraints that uh, don't apply to, to the federal government. Now, I want to focus uh, uh, quickly, uh, because I'm running out of time, on a key difference. Um, the 
budgeting process and the threat of government shutdown is sort of a, a mild threat. You know, a shutdown of governments of two weeks is somewhat disruptive. It's certainly very disruptive for some people if you need a passport urgently. But it's macroeconomically, it's not a big effect. The debt ceiling is a much bigger problem, uh, potentially. We don't really know what's going to happen. And so that's, you know, potentially it's a, a catastrophic outcome. It's going to go into the courts. Exactly what can be done is, uh, is not clear. Um, so if you're thinking about uh, bargaining, um, it, this matters. Uh, so the more dire the, the threat is, uh, and that's where, uh, you know, nuclear war uh, is an example of uh, bargaining across superpowers comes in. We never had nuclear war, thankfully. Um, and part of it, we didn't really have a direct war between uh, the Soviet Union and the United States. And part of it is uh, uh, associated with the idea that uh, mutually assured destruction meant that people realized that it would be uh, a very bad idea. Um, and so what else? We've had plenty of government shutdowns, uh, all of them fairly brief. Um, we've never had a, a default trigger by the dead city. That's partly reassuring. What I think um, is uh, is concerning, though, is uh, you know we had the Cuban Missile Crisis, and yes, people agreed, and nothing happened. Uh, but do we want to really re-experience that? Uh, we certainly don't want to be in the situation which something catastrophic happens. Um, and what makes life a little more complicated at the moment, in my opinion, is that it's not the Democrats bargaining with Republicans only. It's also there's razors in thin majorities uh, for either party in either house. Um, and uh, the two parties are somewhat split between factions. And the more people you have uh, uh, to have uh, uh, to agree at the bargaining table, the bigger the danger that you're gonna something is gonna go wrong. And so my conclusion is that that sitting may be a useful tool to force a budgetary adjustment, but it does come with uh, some big risks of uh, miscalculation that uh, we need to to think about, and maybe alternative mechanisms might. Uh, might be less risk. Thank you. And that brings us to the last speaker uh, today. And it's, it's I, I'm in Oslo, so it's actually night there. Uh, what would happen if we were to go down that road and actually default? Christina Ariano, Dr. Christina Ariano. Uh, monetary advisor at the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis. Why don't you tell us? Thank you, Shetel. Um, thank you, everybody, for uh, being with us and discussing this interesting and important topic. Um, the history of sovereign debt and default over time and across many countries is rich. Uh, the United States have, has never defaulted on its federal debt. And the talk of a potential default of US debt is unusual. In my remarks, I want to stress four main points. First, I will argue that sovereign default is common uh, in many countries in the world and can be very costly. Second, you know, high debt tends to obviously increase the probabilities of those defaults. Uh, but that doesn't mean that uh, using government debt is useful. My third point is that while it's true that in the United States, government debt is as high as it's probably ever been in the last century, at least, um, the interest payments on this debt are uh, in fact not, as not so high and they are lower than uh, a few decades back. And my fourth point is that uh, sort of the lack of progress on negotiations of the debt ceiling threatens possibility, the, 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 this, this benefit of the United States to be able to pay such low interest. I should also say that the views here are my own and those are not of the Federal Reserve uh, system. So going to my first point, uh, so, you know, we have been studying sovereign debt crisis for quite some time, many of us, and um, there have been many, many defaults, especially in middle-income countries. To give you an idea, 
1970, uh, we've experienced about 60 sovereign defaults uh, across 30 middle-income countries. Like you can think about uh, Argentina, um, um, Ecuador, and others. Um, these, these defaults are costly. So just to give you again, uh, you know, there's, there's a classic example that we uh, look at when we uh, think about sovereign default, and that's the Argentinian default in 2001, uh, where, uh, you know, that default triggered a very large spike in dollar interest rates of, you know, interest rates just went to the roof to over 20%. There were large uh, collapses in economic activity of GDP of more than 15%. And some other defaults are maybe less dramatic, but the consensus there is that a sovereign default is costly. Now, not only sovereign default is costly, but the risk of a sovereign default is costly. And the European debt crisis of 2011, it provides us a great example on that. Uh, so, for example, countries like Italy and Spain did not default on their sovereign debt, but there was this risk that they might default. And interest rates on government bonds on these countries in 2011 increased in, this, in, the, in the peak of the crisis to about, uh, up, up, about 5%, so, you know, a 50, a, a 500 basis points. These, uh, these sort of increase in spreads generated uh, costs for the, for the economy. There were uh, generated panics in the financial sector, a credit crunch, and uh, 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 contributed to a decline in economic activity. So in summary, the risk of default and actual defaults are costly as uh, the interest rate on government debts increase and the financial system becomes threatened. Now, to my second point, you know, this is not to say that the governments, uh, you know, should not uh, borrow. That is useful. And uh, both uh, Chris and Marco discussed these benefits of using that. The sort of a standard principle there is that governments should use that to smooth uh, tax revenues and uh, 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 respond to shocks. Uh, the COVID pandemic is a great example of this. Um, uh, during uh, uh, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic in 2020 and 2021, the G7 countries were able to really use their debt to support their citizens. Their debt increased uh, on average by 30% during those two, uh, two periods. And uh, countries like emerging markets, you know, that have much limited fiscal space, were not able to uh, use this, uh, this debt to support their citizens. Countries like Argentina, Brazil, India, Indonesia, Mexico, South Africa, they increased the debt by only about half of the uh, one seen in advanced economies. Um, now, I want to maybe uh, share with you a, a graph for my third point, which is that um, uh, government debt has not, uh, we have not seen, uh, so this is just a picture of uh, the U.S. government debt, so the black line, this is what we're discussing about, uh, debt to output is over 100% now, since in 2080s, it was less than 50%, so for sure, debt to output in the United States is very high. What I want you to focus on in this graph is this red line, which is the interest payments on the debt. So how much the federal government has to pay in interest for this debt, actually, if you see here, has declined from about 6% of output to less, to about 4% of output. Okay. And the reason for this is precisely that um, interest on the debt has declined over time, partially because of this large global demand for US government bonds. Um, they, uh, the, the whole world uses the dollar as the reserve currency. They have this large demand on this debt because of the safety and liquidity properties of U.S. treasuries. And this means that it is actually perhaps not as costly for the government to have this debt and service this debt because interest rates have declined. Um, so on my last, so I want to just conclude here in my last point, uh, which is uh, the fact that um, you know, one pro problem, potential problematic piece of this lack of progress on the negotiations on the debt ceiling 
is that it threatens this large global demand for U.S. treasuries. And this sort of threat could be potentially costly from a fiscal perspective. If uh, global and domestic investors suddenly fear that there might be a potential uh, U.S. government default, they might run away from treasuries into other assets, government, uh, European bonds, Japanese bonds, corporate bonds. And these, of course, would increase the interest rate that the U.S. government has to pay on its securities, which would be detrimental also from a fiscal perspective. Uh, so to conclude, I want to say that the United States has a unique advantage in the world with the dollar being the reserve currency. This is this is very beneficial for our society. And I think it's, uh, you know, is a, is a, a risk that uh, uh, these uh, debt ceiling negotiations uh, are threatened. Thank you. Um, thank you. Can, perhaps all the... Uh, panelists can come on. So um, thanks for this. Let me just, let me just, um, we're going to open up uh, for questions from the audience. Uh, but, uh, but let me, let me just start with the last thing you said, uh, Christina. So <clears throat> um, it's true that the United States has, has a very low interest rate, but, but the other, uh, arguably the other, um, um, Western countries also have very low have had uh, uh, very low interest rates over the last decade. Some people say that we're in a new situation where the uh, interest rate is really low, and therefore perhaps we shouldn't worry about that. The large debt. What's your view on that? I think that the uh, uh, the fact that the interest rates are so low. Uh, is an advantage in a situation when you have a lot of debt because uh, you know what you have to pay in order to service the debt is uh, uh, not that much. As I showed you, it has gone down relative to the say early 1990s, where the well, the, while the government debt was half. But it does not mean that the interest rates will re remain low if the government, for example, of the United States would increase the government debt to GDP to say 500%. Uh, so if you would increase that amount, amount of debt, you know, the, you would naturally think that interest rates will have to rise in order to give incentives to these uh, investors to hold that debt. So, so the, you know, right now it's helping us. Um, and perhaps on the margin, uh, you know, it's been, uh, it's been um, uh, not as costly to have debt to GDP output of over 100%. But, you know, it doesn't mean that we should just sort of let it run and that that interest rate will not change if the government increases the debt even more. Good. Uh, I, I want to give uh, each of you a chance to um, to uh, comment uh, on... Um, uh, so, so first of all, I have to say to the audience, you can... Uh, you can you can write if you are if you like to ask questions or make points. You can go into the Q and A, um, and I believe it should be open for uh, asking questions there. Um, I, I'm going to let um, the three of you um, comment further on each other's talks, but let me just ask um, Chris and Marco. Uh, and a question first. So when this, when when Congress decides on taxes and spending, in principle, they could at the same time just decide on a debt ceiling that's consistent with that. So from that perspective, the debt ceiling shouldn't give any any guardrail, provide any guardrail. But still, they choose. The Congress chooses to not. Uh, uh, leaves a debt ceiling at the same time as they decide taxes and spending. Why? What am I missing? So can I jump in, Marco? I'm gonna I'm gonna end on what the American people want, which is inconsistent things. So the last time the debt ceiling was raised, I believe the House, the Senate, and the presidency were all in the Democratic hands. Why didn't they raise it to fifty thousand trillion? They could have. Uh, they didn't need any Republican votes to do that. Uh, during the Obama administration, there were times when the uh, 
Democrats owned everything. There were times when the Republicans owned everything and they could have raised it to 50,000 trillion. Uh, they choose not to because that's seen as paying, it's, I believe it's correctly seen by the politicians is that they will pay a political price for doing that. Uh, so what the American people want though is, this is what they voted for. Uh, they want a situation where there is a debt ceiling uh, and they voted for divided government. And so you get into this situation where, uh, and they, they want things that don't add up. You know, a certain level of spending, a little certain level of taxes where the spending is above the taxes. So eventually you're going to hit the debt ceiling. Uh, so that, I mean, I, the reason why they didn't get rid of it earlier is because they saw a political price to doing so. Marco? So um, I think uh, my impression is uh, the fact that we have these two separate arrangements is a little bit of uh, uh, um, something that uh, arises from history. It's a quirk of history. Um, Chris mentioned a little bit how it came about. Um, but it, it doesn't seem uh, necessarily good or bad per se. So, you know, we now have uh, two safeguards against uh, excessive uh, uh, fiscal uh, profligacy. Um, that by itself uh, may be good. Um, now, there are issues, and uh, I think Christina uh, talked a lot about them, um, both the cost, direct cost, if the US does uh, uh, default, and uh, the fact that the longer this goes on and the closer we get to default, and uh, if, if people start being seriously expecting that this is an option, there are costs that we're bearing just in anticipation of that, not just uh, uh, when that will happen. And those are, are valid, uh, valid considerations. And they come from the fact that you don't want to get brinkmanship too far. I am, I am, let's take some questions from the audience. There's a question from uh, Hayagrev Ramesh asks, should Congress have a limit on fiscal deficits instead? Marco, you mentioned uh, the European, uh, the Euro area where they have a, a limit both on deficits and the debt. What's the, what is that, would that be a better idea? So Grand Rudman Hollings was about limits on deficits, um, and I think the, the, now the Budget Enforcement Act, I believe that, uh, also was uh, on deficit limits. So you can have uh, uh, both. Um, I think the key is uh, to have some mechanism uh, that uh, prevents uh, uh, whoever in, is in power uh, on that day uh, just to neglect uh, the long-term consequences of their choices. Um, ideally, it would be something that is well understood. Uh, it's simple. In, and uh, ideally, the parties bargaining understand each other well because that is going to uh, avoid the risk of unintended consequences. But, you know, we don't live in an ideal world. Can I can I jump in and ask another question that goes in the same? Uh, I don't know if this Chris might want to say something, but that go in the same line. Uh, the question is from Kurt Winkelmann. Suppose that all agree uh, on the economics of measurement uh, or on management of government finances. If so, uh, then the main issue is, as Chris has pointed out, political. Marco brought up the idea of mechanisms. My question is what would an ideal mechanism look like? I suppose that the corollary is how far away from that idea we are now. Chris? Well, you know, when HHEI does these things, sometimes I feel there's too much agreement among the economists. So I'm going to throw something out that I know Marco and Christina are gonna disagree with. I like to use analogies, like I use the analogy of the condo association. There are some people that just can't handle credit cards. And every financial, you know, credit cards are great. One of my colleagues, Kyle Herkenhoff, just said, you know, people use them now when they, you know, they didn't really exist much before the 80s. Uh, people use them now when they lose their job. They get lots of benefits from smoothing their consumption in bad times, you know, eating more than their income in bad times by going into their credit cards and then paying them off later. 
And some people can handle credit cards. Other people can't. And financial advisors tell them to just cut the things up. They lose all the benefits associated with credit cards, but at least they don't go bankrupt. And so my personal thing is rather draconian. We should just put, I wouldn't mind if there was a constitutional amendment right now that said the debt limit is $1 trillion higher than it is now. And that's it. You're stuck with it, even in nominal terms. And not because I disagree that there are benefits to being able to use uh, deficit spending in emergencies and so forth. It's just that, just like for a family that can't handle their credit cards, the benefits are outweighed by the cost, which is exactly for what Marco said, we have this equilibrium that uh, person in Tabellini talked about, which is each government, when they're in power, wants to spend on what they want to spend on and leave their successor broke. And it just causes a debt, you know, it's causing, we can see the debt to GDP ratio now is twice what it was, what, 15 years ago? We're in a bad situation. I wouldn't mind cutting up the credit cards. That's my mechanism to answer Kurt's question. Christina, what's your favorite mechanism? Oh, you muted. I'm surprised, uh, Chris, for your uh, uh, proposal because uh, I think that uh, you know the state contingency part of the of the mechanisms are uh, you know so. Uh, useful in uh, most of economics. So this idea of an uncontingent debt ceiling in nominal terms, um, you know, seem, seem, uh, seem sort of extreme in the, in the context of, of uh, optimal contracting. Um, and I, I also want to say, I mean, the, the, the issue with, uh, I mean, just going back to uh, uh, a little bit emerging markets and uh, maybe thinking about the United States is that the market does provide a, mechan a disciplining mechanism, okay? And I'm I'm sympathetic with what you're saying in terms of uh, the, the you know the political the political process being problematic for um, over borrowing, but uh, you know the market uh, you know when when governments in in uh, in uh, emerging markets or or uh, maybe even in the United States when they want to borrow a lot, then interest rates increase and that gives already a discipline mechanism for the government to not you know, borrow as much. And in the United States, we are very, very far away from that. So it is sort of uh, uh, not, a, not a market mechanism that is disciplining, uh, that, would, that is present, but actually this uh, um, political mechanism. And I, and I completely agree with you that it is sort of, sort of a uh, decision in terms of what the American people want the, the finances to look like. Uh, but, but you know, um, just to, to, you know, think about the state contingency, I think that 100% of GDP of debt is a lot, okay? But at low, but at zero real rates, I mean, that is not that much. So, so the uh, Chris's um, Molotov cocktail has triggered uh, activity here on the net. So, um, I think I, there is, I think, I, I think um, at least I have, I have a point there. So um, uh, one of the new rights, I'm constantly hearing politicians talking about how we need to act like a household and balance our budget every year. Is the household really a good analogy of the country? Uh, Christina um, um, uh, alluded to an important issue, namely everybody out there, they want to use American dollars as for the American dollars is the backbone of the financial system. When a person in Mali wants to trade with a person in Norway, they trade in American US dollars. So, so US dollars provides um, liquidity to the market. The market loves liquidity. The, the financial system needs it. A household, I wish I could issue uh, my own currency. Nobody's gonna buy them. Um, so uh, that brings me to, uh, 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 so, um, you know, perhaps the, uh, the other extreme would be to just deposit a trillion dollar coin into the treasury, as Gavin Johnson asks here in the net. Chris, take that. So can one. I, Go can ahead. I just make a quick thing? And then Marco, who's really the expert on this, can correct me if I'm wrong. So... I actually do think that thinking about these things in terms of households is close enough to being right to make talking about it in terms of households useful. Is it exactly right? 
No, households can't print their own currency. Uh, households don't have to pay their debts off. I mean, the U.S. government has an option if it can get the Fed to go along. And again, I consult for the Fed and just talking for me, not the Fed. Uh, if they get the government along, that every time they needed to pay, make a payment, they could just make the payment by printing new dollars. Uh, households can't do that. The problem is people take that too far. Christine is absolutely right that there's a kind of a free lunch for Americans by the fact that the world wants to use dollars and the, U, the world wants to save during, using United States treasuries. We get kind of a constant flow of free stuff from the rest of the world because of that. But it is a finite flow. It is not that we can do whatever we want. We don't need to tax that much. Right? It is a finite flow, and I actually don't think it's huge. It's big, but not, I don't know what it, what that means. It's big, but not huge. So that's why I still use the household analogies. You kind of have to think of it, maybe the right household analogy is you're a household that's spending more of your income, but some of that income is a constant flow from an inheritance or something like that. The household analogy works, but yes, it is the case that having the reserve currency and being able, and everybody wanting to hold U.S. treasuries uh, is kind of a constant free lunch. It's just not so big it gets us out of all of our problems. Marco? I think you said it uh, very well. Uh, so yes, I mean, the government has some special revenues. They're not infinite. Um, and uh, you know, if you put together uh, what Christina said, what Chris said, what I said, um, you can see that uh, we've been in a very special period. You know, I pointed out how deficits are somewhat unprecedented, but Christina showed you that um, that uh, interest payments are uh, historically very low. Um, and uh, and the debt to GDP ratio has uh, come down uh, recently, and that's because, uh, in real terms, after inflation, um, we've been paying terrible uh, rates uh, to whoever uh, uh, lent uh, uh, to the federal government um, to the tune of negative uh, uh, several percents. Um, the question is: uh, Is that something that we can sustain uh, for the future? Um, it's certainly unprecedented. Uh, I mean, there's uh, uh, quite a bit of research thinking that um, safe interest rates may have come down, but I don't think anyone would be ready to think that they're gonna be minus 5% uh, uh, going forward. And if they're not that, then we're gonna need to make some adjustment uh, uh, at some point. And that adjustment will very much look like uh, the adjustments that a household would have to do. Can I just, I, I, I really agree with that, but can I just say uh, one thing? Um, uh, imagine, the, the, um, in, in, in some sense, I would claim that we don't really know why the interest rates have fallen so much. They've fallen really a lot since 2000. And at the moment, they looks like they're gonna stay low for a long time. But if we don't know why they came down, it's going to be hard to it, it, it's hard to say that they couldn't go back up uh, and it would be sad if they went back up if we build up a huge debt and see the interest rate rise precisely when uh, a lot of people are, uh, go for retirement let me but, uh, let me can i answer yeah. something you're saying so i just want yeah. to comment on this so um there is uh, some evidence from these uh, emerging market debt crises that um, default risk can change things very, very quickly. So there is this sort of uh, you know long-term trend of the real rate of the ra rates coming down, which you're saying, well, they might, you know, there's some factors that are predictable. For example, demographics. Demographic is one reason why interest rates have uh, you know come down and that's expected to 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 persist. But uh, sort of if there, if there is a risk of of the oh, there's chatter, there's a there's a sort of a, a fear that the U.S. government is going to default. That could change very quickly the appetite for those Treasury bonds, and uh, and so that you wouldn't want to get into that scenario, obviously. But I just want to say that that that, that sort of this idea that interest rates are going to remain low, um, you know that that is that is uh, under this uh, confidence. Uh, environment uh, that we want to protect and we want to continue. Question from Ray Carter. If you were in the room with Biden and McCarthy 
what would you advise to reach compromise? Anybody willing to speak on that? I think that's a very difficult question because we all have our own politics. So my answer would be, please do whatever I think is my current. So as an economist, the answer would be agree on something. As a voter with my own preferences on what happens to the government is, please do exactly what I want you to do. And I, I find it's hard. I find it hard to separate those and just agree. Uh, we all know is kind of useless. You know, so you can't you can't just tell people to just agree because at the end the question is always agree to what because they're both going to look at you and say I agree we should agree he should do what I want. When we're on the politics, here's a question from. Uh, uh, Mark uh, Zashin, does the 14th Amendment really help at this time of the political stalemate? And the one who answers it, please explain what is meant by the 14th Amendment. Waiting for Marco or Christina to jump in. I'll, I'll give a quick thing. Um, I don't think it helps. The 14th Amendment does say that you can't question the government debt, which is interpreted as you got to make the payments. It's unconstitutional for the government to renounce its debt. I don't think that helps resolve anything because the power to make new debt is with Congress, not the president, just like the power to tax uh, is with Congress and not the president. I mean, one way to solve this is just to raise taxes. Uh, but again, you need the Congress to pass something to raise taxes, and the president has to be willing to sign it. Uh, same with raising the debt limit. You need Congress to be willing to pass something. The House has, the Senate hasn't, uh, and it has to be in the form that the president's willing to sign. I don't think the 14th Amendment really applies other than it has a little thing, which is suppose that they said, well, look, we're going to do it anyway. We're going to just increase the debt. Uh, it does say lawfully issued debt shall not be questioned. And so I would worry about a debt, purchasing debt, that if they said, look, I don't care if it's, a, if it's over the limit, we're just going to do it anyway. I would worry about purchasing that because a future government could say 14th Amendment doesn't apply because this wasn't lawfully issued. Here's a question from Vivi Chari. A long-standing principle of public finance uh, and in times of peace and relative prosperity, fiscal policy should reduce debt relative to output. Are we anywhere near that dictum, especially given the demographic time bomb we anticipate? I think we all said no. <laughs> I think that's uh, that's uh, fairly clear, uh, and that's part of uh, of the concern here. I would like actually to mention something about uh, this uh, in, in relation to the fact that we have low interest rates. Uh, to me, the fact that we have low interest rates and we don't, uh, I mean, we have various theories, but it's not uh, settled uh, what, what, what is causing them is uh, an issue of concern in itself. Because, you know, people, so we have uh, uh, sometimes negative uh, re-rates but, you know, people want to get mortgages. They seem to be impatient. People run credit card balances. Uh, I don't see people so desperate to save. Uh, and that tells me that there's something in uh, financial markets. So the you know, U.S. treasuries have this uh, special role. Um, and uh, somehow intermediation between those borrowers that would have good use for funds. They would like to buy houses. They have projects and so on. And savers that like to save is not working as well as uh, as it could. And so just saying, oh, it's great that we have uh, low rates. It's great for government finances, but it does say that maybe there's something uh, that is an issue. Um, I sense that the three of you actually um, are pretty happy about the debt ceiling. that we should be glad yeah. that we have it because you think we need a guardrail 
on on physical problems or or, or not uh oh, it has benefits by high schools i don't want to have this is a bit too strong it's like saying um, i'm happy that we have uh, nuclear weapons because uh, we never use them uh, but with nuclear weapons I, mean, <laughs> I think if if we could press on a button and remove nuclear weapons i think we'll do it but we can See, take away that limit we can't take away nuclear weapons sorry they are invented but we can take away the debt limit and instead just focus on agreeing when we when we set taxes and spending but you defend it well marco brought this up most states have something like a balanced budget amendment they can't spend more than they take in except for capital projects if they're going to uh run us if they're going to build a, a new highway system in that state they can borrow for that and the idea being that you're it is true that you're passing the costs of paying those bonds back to future taxpayers you're also passing the benefits they get the road back then too and they kind of want to match uh the benefits to future taxpayers to the cost to future taxpayers of debt they seem to work out okay from in my perspective and so i all of us agree that there are benefits to being able to have debt. Uh, what Professor Chari talked about in terms of standard fiscal policy. I guess my uh, thought is that, yes, I agree that it's, it's about magnitudes. My thought is, and in fact, this applies to, I think, the third, you know, to, to developing countries as well. Whatever benefits they're getting from using international capital markets so that they can spend more in a year than they're than they're bringing up in taxes seems to me to be dwarfed by all the drama that it's caused by having sovereign defaults so it would be better if they just couldn't borrow but that's a quantitative thing it's not saying there are no benefits it's saying that i think that the costs out the costs outweigh the benefits and that's the way i feel about the, the debt ceiling is that we have this tendency just to keep borrowing and borrowing and borrowing and it's the one thing that's possibly keeping us from a different disaster but it's a judgment call. And also um, get back to actually something that Chari mentioned in the in the in the uh, questions here. These uh, demographic time bombs. So you know, we many of us have seen those projections of uh, a Congressional Budget Office in terms of uh, the two output in the United States government debt to output projected to increase a lot and i think uh, that is uh, of course because of the population aging um, and health expenditures um, being very very high um and you see those projections and, and then you say well you know maybe uh 100 of gdp is okay maybe 200 maybe 300 i mean it keeps going so i don't know the process by which uh we you know what the process is to to shape or discipline or change those potential paths uh in our political process maybe the debt limit is one component but that but those but those uh uh projections are certainly uh you know potentially worrisome uh, and um, I think that's what you're also alluding to, Shettle. Maybe that, that limit is uh, ceiling is one piece. I mean, there might be better ways for sure, because these sort of risks of potential uh, technical default uh, with 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 bad consequences uh, because of the uh, because of this polarization in our political system is is uh, is uh, 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 costly as well. But you know, those projections in terms of the long, you know, more medium term, long run, those are certainly um, you know, they gives you pause. We have one minute to go. Uh, I want to each make a final statement and then we close the webinar. I've done a lot of talking. I'll let Marco and Christina go. So I'll say uh, this is connected to this last question. I think simple, clear rules, probably in the constitution because that way they are harder to change would be a, a good idea. There's plenty to talk about exactly what rules, but um, these fuzzy rules where we don't know exactly what's gonna happen are probably not the best way to ensure fiscal discipline. They're better than nothing, they're not the best way. I think we'll let 
that be the last uh, moment today. I want to, or you want to say uh, close, Christina? No. Uh, I mean, I want to maybe just say that uh, I think that uh, for me, you know, output, the two output of 100% for the United States does not seem so high. Uh, and I think at this point, sort of the uh, some uh, agreement on a uh, on, on our on, in, in our um, in, in with our political uh, uh, process is important because the consequences of a potential technical default can be very high. Thank you. I want to end by saying um, that HHEI, Hello Horowitz uh, Economic Institute, has a podcast. This uh, webinar will be available there. Uh, today's, we have one podcast coming out every uh, Wednesday. Today's podcast is by former president of the uh, Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, Gary Stern, talking about uh, the banking crisis. It's a fantastic episode. I encourage you to see it. Good night, everybody. <laughs>